Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live with Greg. Thanks for your support. with a new episode of Live With Greg. <laughs> how do you want to be... I should ask this earlier. Like, how would you like to be addressed since this is a public forum? Uh, like, in terms of my name? Right. Or... Uh, Sequoia is fine. Is yeah. Q okay? Q's great. Really? Yeah. yeah, Q's great. That's the nickname I've taken on, like, in a greater sphere. Sometimes I sign my art as Q. I spell it as in, like, queuing, Q-U-E-U-E, but just to, like, stretch it out a little bit, but queue's great. In the queue. Yeah. All right. In the queue. Yeah. What about my personal pet name for you? Yeah. Quality? Great. great. Yeah. <laughs> great. All right. So I'm here with Q, Quality. <laughs> New episode of Live with Greg. I've always read it as live. Uh, you know, I kind of yeah. like that twisted element yeah. about it. And ambiguous. It's appropriately ambiguous. Yeah. But I always thought that it was like, oh, we're broadcasting now, and this is it's happening in real time. This is being uploaded as we're speaking. You know, streaming. I also have no idea how any of this works. So, <laughs> like, I made my first PowerPoint in my entire life two days ago. Did you share it with your mom? I didn't. <laughs> But I made it in Google Documents, so oh, wow. it might be a betrayal to her product line. I don't know. Does Adobe have something that's the equivalent of PowerPoint? Yeah. Oh, they've got oh, that yeah. new thing. I love. They've got the PowerPoint. <laughs> no, Microsoft has the oh, PowerPoint. Okay. See, this is this is how much I know about technology. That's all right. Programming. No. It's all like if it's do, did it do what you wanted to do. Yeah, it it did. It was a slideshow. I probably could have just made a slideshow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My originally, I was like, I'm just gonna print out some pictures and put them on the blackboard and point at them when I want people to look at a specific image because that's that's how technologically deficient I am. But. But then my professor showed me how to download images into a PowerPoint through Google PowerPoint. So I was like, okay, it's probably time. Like, I am however many years into a college education at this point, I should probably know how to make a PowerPoint. And here we are. I have one useful skill that's coming out of this whole experience, so... We've done it. I think you'll have more than one useful skill. I hope so. I hope so, too. <laughs> yeah. What's your major you're going for? I'm double majoring in uh, studio art and art history. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Art history is um, 
it started out as a little bit of a fallback because, you know, I mean, the whole starving artist trope and I've just heard my entire life, like, don't get a degree in studio art. Don't become an artist. You won't succeed. It's going to be really hard. Artists never work in, like, you know, I'm still going to do it. But right. but art history was also kind of like, this is a way to get into, like, museum work, um, like, working with archaeologists, um, you know, getting, getting more, um, like, it's easier to get teaching jobs if you're, if you have a background in art history, um, as a studio artist, because you have, like, theory to back up your practice kind of a thing. Um, but I also, yeah, academics, the whole, the whole politics of academia. Yeah. And I love art history. I mean, it's also out of a personal desire to have theory to back up my work. So this is a good place to start. Cool. Yeah. Did you see that? Do you watch any Netflix stuff? Some, yeah. Did you see that stand-up routine by the woman from Tasmania? Nanette? No, no. It's really powerful. I've had it recommended to me a couple of times. I've also been told that it's like kind of heartbreaking. So I've been like, we'll save this for a day when I'm in a really good mood and I want something to just bring me down a couple notches, so... Yeah. The last, her ending line. It was hard for me to watch. Mm. I turned it off once. That's the white man gets it pretty, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Right between the eyes. Right. Amen. And uh, but her okay. last <laughs> line, what she closes with, is so beautiful mm-hmm. and so powerful and uplifting and transformative. It's worth the pain one might experience in watching it, because it's, yeah, it's a painful okay. piece. But she's an art history person. Oh. She has a degree in art history. Okay. And art history plays a big part in the story she's telling, along with other elements of cool. sexuality cool. and gender and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. But yeah, pick a day when... You're breathing. <laughs> You're not underwater. Although I like I said that last minute that is like it's worth it all. Just like puts a band aid on. That's not a band aid. No, no, it's more like I turned the oven up to high mm. and this is why. Mm-hmm. I mm. believe in the experience of the oven. I think there's power and burning off that like that which burns away Mm -hmm. was not of my spirit anyway Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um I like I like that and I I like the idea that that kind of invokes of like um like trauma therapy um like I was when I was getting this tattoo done I was talking to my artist about um like controlled trauma as a therapy because I was going to get this and then I was going to go ride roller coasters with my friends and like the like 
having a controlled traumatic experience where you think you're gonna die and like you know you you have to kind of confront that you like volunteered for this experience um and you like this is voluntary harm and pain being inflicted on your body and like you paid for this and you paid a lot of money to have this experience but that that like um that trauma helps you like ground back into reality and like confront you know the um just everyday life and helps you like like it gives you tools to deal with like true trauma and trauma that you didn't volunteer for but like it kind of helps you um parcel out like what is worth feeling hurt over and what is worth like 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 pain that is worth focusing on versus like pain that we can let go of easily like it helps kind of center everything around reality if you have these experiences of pain that you're like yeah yeah i'm i'm experiencing this intentionally and i'm going into it like prepared to experience it which is like what you do every time you go in to get a tattoo you like know it's gonna hurt and you know it's gonna be great afterwards so you have to like have that that talk with yourself um or at least i do I'm sure there are people who just hate the whole experience or people who love the whole experience. So, you know. Yeah. I imagine people who hate the whole experience do it once. I don't know. <laughs> My mom has two tattoos and she hates it. Really? But she also only has two kids, so maybe two is her limit with that kind of thing. <laughs> Why'd she get the second one? I don't know. I don't know. I know that it it she's she's overdue for one. I know that it's something that she had the intention of doing every 10 years. So like the first one was on her 30th birthday, the second one was on her 40th and she wants she has one that she's had in the works for the past 6 or 7 years that she was supposed to get on her 50th, which right around that same time was when I got my first tattoo. Um but I think they're like, they're like life, life lesson markers for her. Cause the second one that she got was like this symbol from a tarot deck that has this central like intertwining spiral thing. And it's about giving and receiving. And I know that was her mantra for a long time. Um, or something like that was her mantra just about this idea of like reciprocity across all things. Um, so, you know, she only does it when it's really, really important for her to get this thing. Like, she heard story about her, I think it was her first tattoo, like, um, the artist gave her a stress ball to squeeze while she was getting it because she doesn't take pain well. Um, and she couldn't drive afterwards because her, her squeezy muscles were so worn out wow. just from holding onto this ball throughout the whole thing. Um... You said a little earlier, like the pain that's worth concentrating on. Mm. And the question popped into my head, is there pain that's worth concentrating on? Is that the end of the question? 
Well, then I now it isn't for me because then what comes to mind is, you know, from what I've heard, the Buddha said this world is suffering. That's what this world is, mm -hmm. and there's a way out. <laughs> and when you were talking about the control of pain and volunteering. Mm -hmm. I was thinking on a very ethereal level that that's what we did coming here, all of us beings. Like, okay, there's hell, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm volunteering to go there. Figure this out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. That's a hard question for me because it's that's so much of like what I deal with um just in terms of mental health and in terms of anxiety like uh I have um like I've called it a death response to very very little situations that don't actually involve my life like my life is not on the line in so many situations and the way that I physiologically react to it is as though I were about to die like it's this really visceral like I am being attacked by a large predator and like my body needs to respond in order to get me away from this predator so that I can survive another day um, and it'll it'll happen after like stressful conversations with people it'll it'll happen in traffic it'll happen like um, if I don't get a paper in on time, like really ultimately inconsequential things. Um, but like my body fixates on pain and on trauma, um, whether or not I want to <laughs> and whether or not I deem it worthy of my, my fixation, it just happens. Um, and it's something I'm working on. Yeah. Yeah. What's blowing me away is, uh, recently, like I'd say within the past 24 hours, noticing how my emotions are energy mm -hmm. in my body. Mm -hmm. If I have a depressed thought or a thought of hopelessness, mm -hmm. and like you're saying, it could be really pathetically surface like oh do I have to get up and go to work out right now yeah <laughs> fuck your white boy problems right <laughs> and yet the energy in my body is mm -hmm. dark mm -hmm. heavy and if I go fuck they're gifting me this that's so cool like what a gift all of a sudden that energy in my body now is light and mm -hmm. mm -hmm. positive mm -hmm. So this is sort of like a left turn down into the rabbit hole, <laughs> if you will. Okay. <clears throat> because part of what you're talking about in this studying I've been doing, mm. and even this video I saw of this 14-year-old girl who um, attempted to take her life, but then you get into it right when she took all these pills, she went running to her mom and dad and said, hey, you got to take me to the emergency room now. Mm. 
So obviously mm-hmm. she didn't want to take her life. Mm-hmm. However, I think us as children potentially are taking on survival techniques, like this one group I'm studying with and the woman who's really running the group, and she's doing a lot of studying. She talks about at four months old, infants being so dependent on especially the mother Mm -hmm. for survival are starting to make choices to appease the parents Mm. so that they survive. Oh, that's intense. Yeah, so like if there's a mom who doesn't deal with anger well, Mm -hmm. the infant is lashing out like, I'm hungry. And the mom's like, you you don't do that with me. The infant's going to cut that off. Mm -hmm. Their survival depends on it. Mm -hmm. And then for adults who that programming you know we've put that program into ourselves and now you and I are interacting (laughs) and you're not getting angry with me because you think your survival depends on it but really for the health of us two adults it'd be wise for you to get angry at me because (laughs) there's cause and reason for it right yeah and as a healthy adult I should be able to hear the anger not Mm -hmm. take it so personal Mm mm-hmm but that gets into the worm, you know, the rabbit hole. It's like, wow, how deep does that go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. God, I had something. Um. But it's it's fascinating that that children as as young as four months old are like learning appropriate behaviors and like I I just assumed that they were all like animal instincts and like you know they were just only communicating needs and that was all they knew how to do like you know yeah because apparently in a healthy mother infant relationship Mm -hmm the mother mirrors that mm-hmm. emotion and then responds to it appropriately. Mm-hmm. So the mother would go like, oh, you're raging. I see rage. Okay, what do you need? Mm-hmm. You're hungry? Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In an, in an ideal parental relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure that's how that works out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about this, um, like, how our needs as like social creatures drive our behavior and like um I mean that's been so obscured by like um like I think you know privilege across gender and and race really like um like we don't um mitigate our behavior so much based on like reactions from from the world 
around us because like we've we've all been taught how to interact with different people in in different ways and like we've been taught you know that we get to take up x amount of space and that like that really um is such a powerful um like direction or director of behavior um for everyone but i was just thinking about this this video i saw a long time ago where um it was a group of rescued chimpanzees like it was a it was a sanctuary situation where people were were bringing chimps from um like like either injured chimps in the wild whose homes had been destroyed or like um a lot of them were like old circus or old like performing chimps and they just needed to be rehabilitated in some way but it was this tribe of chimps um and they would be given every day like just a pile of branches with leaves on them that they could eat like that was their food and there was one chimp who um she was like a a young female chimp who would grab a whole branch and would run off with it and wouldn't share it with the rest of the group um and after a while they stopped grooming her and that's like a huge um like marker of acceptance in the chimp world and like that's that's a a really significant bonding ritual that they have that kind of like helps solidify each individual member's place in the group and they they cut her off they like stopped grooming her um and like after a while she stopped running off with the branch because like that was their way of being like all right if you're not going to be a part of this group then you really don't get to be a part of this group and that that isolation was too much for her to the point where she was like going to examine my behavior <laughs> and I'm going to I don't know if, if the, her her cognitive processing around it was that articulate you know but she was she shifted her um her behavior around mealtime because she wasn't getting uh reciprocity from from the group not that she was participating in that in the first place but um so that isolation like and that need to be a part of the social group like drove her to like really to stop thinking about herself exclusively i guess um you know that's anthropomorphizing it to some extent but like i don't know i think that's reflected in human situations sometimes um I think I think absolutely it is and I have faith in the course of nature in that mm-hmm. self-correcting element in evolution mm-hmm. and I think it it's a millennial process or you know it's millions of years mm-hmm. and I think it's hard when we see an act a character trait seemingly um, rewarded. Hmm. 
and it seems like whoa that doesn't seem in harmony with life mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. you know for me personally I think our current president is an example however there's people I know through my experience in life who mm -hmm. are strong supporters of him and I respect that they see something that I don't see mm. and it's like what you were saying before about projection of what people are going to put on you mm. Mm -hmm. Whew, so much going through my head like, <laughs> wait wait I had that thought um, So, let's see if this works. In, you mentioned how in traffic, that element of fight or flight mm -hmm. rises up. Mm -hmm. It could be rising up from a survival habit you learned at four months old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, like the only logic I see is, and you're, you're doing it, is to, is to take responsibility for everything going on with me, emotionally, physically, mm -hmm. mentally. As soon as I project it onto that fucker, <laughs> or my mom, or whatever, mm -hmm. for one, I've given up any hope or power for me to heal myself because mm -hmm. now it's someone else's or something else's responsibility mm -hmm. and there's so much evidence I have of how the same thing could be seen differently and neither person's wrong in another example is I was just talking with my youngest sister about a week ago and she mentioned, like, she said to me, I don't have the same childhood you have. Like, I got hit with a belt mm -hmm. and spanked with a wooden spoon. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like it's not a big deal where for you, there's a lot of suffering you have. Mm -hmm. And she's like, and that's for you to deal with. And I was like, wow. So it's almost like here we are in the same room. And she's saying, it's warm and comfortable. I love it. I'm like, I'm freezing fucking cold. <laughs> you know, and whose responsibility is it to learn to go get a jacket? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know. It's just like the way that we... Um, like especially trauma I think the way that like we um, we take it on and deal with it is so informed by like everything in our life leading up to that trauma like like you know um, like if it's something we're used to or if if 
we just happen to have the tools to deal with it um, or engage with it in a, a way that renders it easier to deal with. Um, yeah, it just it just shifts how how we like carry it forward. Um, and it, it just requires so much like self-analysis, I think, like to in self-understanding to be able to be like, okay, this is what I'm feeling now and this is what I need to proceed from this moment in the healthiest or least traumatic way possible. Um, and it's such an evolving thing. Um, I remember something I was going to say earlier. I read somewhere or saw somewhere this, um, and I don't remember what it related to, but it was this thing, um, kind of about taking on global trauma where like we are equipped to like psychologically, physiologically, emotionally, we are equipped to deal with the suffering of our family group, which is like our nuclear family and our extended family, like, like essentially like tribal suffering. We are equipped to deal with X amount of suffering from X amount of people. Um, and like with the advent of especially now of the internet, but also just like, like global news casting, like TV, we, we see and take on so much more suffering than we're really able to deal with. Um, to the point where like, we either like decide that we can't deal with it anymore and we decide to leave the planet um, of our own accord or like we just you know, I mean some people respond to it by like trying to solve the suffering that they're that they're witness to or like we we abstractify it to the point where it's not something that is even real for us anymore because we just don't have the capacity for that amount of empathy um, and that amount of like, like internalizing of the suffering of others, like we're exposed to however many millions of lives every day, despite even just by our understanding of like what conditions are like in other parts of the world, you know, or like, you know, yeah. I think it's even the manner in which the information's given mm -hmm. to us. Like this mm -hmm. hurricane that just hit, hit South Carolina. Mm -hmm. It was communicated to me in such a dramatic fashion. Mm -hmm. You know, like, here comes this horror. And then yeah. hurricanes have been a, you know, a part of life forever. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would see... That from a scientific standpoint, I think it was class three. Like, yeah, it's a hurricane, but it's not class five. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the way it, that drama that it mm -hmm. was coming, you know, so I would feel myself go like, oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like, 
like I think um, something that I think about a lot, just especially with like like how much we're able to ask perfect strangers for help through like through Facebook, even like um, like I just see you know, all the time, like, if you can't show up to this rally, if you, for some reason, can't call your representative, here's where you can donate money, and it's, like, the way that I take that on is it's, it's like, oh, this is, this thing that I only just now found out about is my personal responsibility. I am obligated to offer my resources to this cause that I just now found out about to people that I didn't know existed. Um, like, that it is my personal responsibility to help this person. Um, and I see, like, fucking 15 of those, like, in a half hour of scrolling Facebook, you know? And that, like, like that's another way that I take on trauma and like the suffering of other people like through this this network of um you know i mean it's it's a super legitimate network and it's cool that people are able to i mean it's fucked up that people have to but you know like this person's hospital bill gets paid through their their fundraising posts you know but um I just take that on so much and so intensely and I have to like like dissociate from it to some extent um and like they're not asking you personally unless they are usually they're not they're not asking you personally you don't even really have the resources to donate to this kind of thing you are you are living your own life you have your own shit to deal with. You are not going to be the make or break for this person's well-being or this cause, you know? Um, but I think, like, that... That tribal um, mentality of, like, because if, if someone in your family group comes to you personally or if it's like a dear friend and they're asking you specifically for help there's this visceral reaction to like I, I need to be there for this person I need to help them with whatever means I have and like at least the way I react to these things is like is it's not different from that like I don't really differentiate the situations like it's not different when my dear friend is asking me for help versus when maybe another dear friend is reposting some um like fundraising thing like the feeling isn't different and my reaction to to um or my urge to like help is not different and it's totally physiological it's not a conscious thing at all like like if i could pick and choose how i react to things and like the amount of emotional energy that I invest in each of these interactions, like, I absolutely would save it all for the people that are near and dear to me, but, like, like, it's just not something that my body differentiates, because I'm, I'm not neurologically equipped for that kind of thing, and I don't think anyone is. Um, 
think we are neurologically equipped for it. And we need to learn to... There's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. Like something didn't get wired mm -hmm. straight. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> With what you just were talking about, I remember when I was doing a lot of sweat equity for the mom and her son and I asked like if you were willing to help and I meant just spread it, spread it out on your network mm. and you thought like I was asking for money which mm -hmm. they were ultimately asking for mm -hmm. but I know getting the word out I is part of that. that yeah and it's just as, like you're saying there's I I see them both valuable mm -hmm. I appreciated your honesty with your first response of I like you just said I my resources are tapped I've got just enough mm -hmm. for me I was like oh wait that's not what I meant mm -hmm. but I also appreciated the no there's um, a couple wealthy people in my life and I, like I said I'm in financial trouble right now mm -hmm. and they both mm -hmm. really respectfully said no mm -hmm. and, it, and I had no it could be because of the clarity so there wasn't any charge from them of like oh why are you hassling me you know it's mm -hmm. just a very kind friendly no that's not what I do mm -hmm. um And I think that's the neurological wiring. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you place... Um, that's someone texting me. No. <laughs> Do you... Where's the bird? <laughs> I keep expecting animals to just... I don't know, there's something very, like, cabin in the woods about this room. I just... Squirrels live in the roof. Through. Oh, okay. And if that's you hear running around, that's yeah. squirrels. Yeah. You may see them running outside, and yeah, yeah. I I love right. that about this space. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I know that I attach my feeling of worth to being able to say yes. And I take it away from myself when I say no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I've had so many opportunities in the past couple years to, like, practice saying no to things that I felt were really important for me to be doing but then like ultimately I wasn't able to do them for whatever reason like um last year was that last year yeah last year I was supposed to be um doing this this role at a witch camp and it came down to like a week before I was going to go and I was in the middle of moving and I had no money, um, really couldn't afford to take a week off of work to be there. And like, I felt like I was letting 
everyone who I had told it was going to be there down um, by not going and like letting myself down and like just really going on a, on a tangent about like oh you're gonna miss out on just relationship building opportunities and you're not gonna be as close to these people and they're gonna like cut you out of their lives because you broke their hearts by not doing this and that's that's an aside but like um it also felt really good to be like I can't do this this isn't what I need right now and this also is more than I can give right now um so like that opportunity to like take care of myself and like also sit with the feeling of um like letting someone down but ultimately understanding that it was in my best interest like just really like sitting with the feeling of self-care being difficult but still necessary and important um it was really cool and really hard but really cool um and to understand that I was capable of doing that was especially good like um because I do attach self-worth to like how how much I'm able to show up and like in really specific ways of showing up to like um like in terms of like direct action and activism like there's some amount of glamour attached to the people who are actually like going to protests and like lying down in intersections or you know putting sand in the bulldozers gas tanks or whatever like there's so much glamour wrapped up in like the confrontational like physical attendance to these protests or like you know these actions um and I think that was something I really internalized about activism specifically it was like you're not really showing up if you're not in the middle of it which is really ableist in a lot of ways because there are people who physically can't show up to these things and like participate in the ways that that able-bodied people are able to which I am able-bodied so um but like like that is kind of how I attach value to my own ability is like you need to be doing the maximum amount of work you need to be doing the most exhaustive most um, like active role otherwise you're not helping like anything less than a spectacular amount of energy is not not energy that bears any worth um, so even just like in my reactions to anyone asking for money ever like I feel like I don't even see how I can be of use sometimes because it's not the the max it's not you know paying off this person's debt in entirety so therefore it's totally unhelpful <laughs> like um just in the Dream.
aspect of that, I guess. Um. It's like if we can flip that, because that, to me, and I suffer in it, is so egocentric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of coming from a place of community and my little bit along with everyone else's mm-hmm. is going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm gonna save the world. Yeah. The the hero the hero mentality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which goes to that piece I think of mattering. Mm-hmm. We wanna matter. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important to matter. Mm-hmm. And if we learn that we matter within community, mm-hmm. it's like the drop is just as important to the ocean as the rest of the drops creating the ocean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's like um, some piece about visibility too, I think, where like we, I mean, I know this about myself I need a lot of external validation to feel like I'm really contributing to anything and like I'm getting better at recognizing my own power and my own like like you know I did this thing it it did help it didn't you know I'm trying to lessen my dependence on external praise but like I think also in general a lot of people need external validation to understand that they're doing a good job or that they're helping at all. Um, So I think, like, it's really hard for me to, to, to understand my contribution if I'm not, like, in a central role around something. Like, even just in um, conducting like rituals um like in in witchy circles and in pagan circles like around conducting rituals like i downplay my own role in any amount of of the co-creation of a ritual if i'm not in like a central speaking role um because, like, there are narratives around, like, what, you know, what power looks like in any given situation. And it's so easy to downplay the power of, like, like, even if it's just, like, I laid the sticks out for this fire and no one saw me do it. And no one's going to tell me what a good job I did laying out the sticks for this fire. But, like, we also really needed a fire. And, like, you know, the whole, like unsung hero thing but it's yeah it's just it's easy to devalue the roles that don't get a spotlight put on them okay if we take (laughs) a ritual Mm -hmm. and all the in your and this is me learning in Mm -hmm. your experience of ritual is there always a leader or maybe a minority of leadership in a productive ritual. Yes. Sort of. Um, Reclaiming is kind of different in the way it constructs 
ritual in that um, and most of the people who are in reclaiming are anarchists so there's not going to be like one that ideally there's not going to be one like central figure who is kind of calling the shots but with with the vast majority of rituals there's a small contingent of people who plan it um, and usually that same contingent of people are the people who are taking on ritual roles um, so it is very like tailored to the needs and the ideas of that group of people but everything is usually done in consensus so it's not like one directorial role telling everyone else what to do and there's there's very seldom um like one focal character um in the course of a ritual like there will be larger speaking pieces but most of those are are centered around like specific activities in a ritual like and they're necessary because someone needs to be directing what's going on and like needs to be communicating to ritual participants what's going on um but i think like just the visibility that's that's rendered by having a speaking role really like results in this glamorization of it um because like in in more traditional pagan groups there's like a priestess or a priest and like we still refer to people who are directing the rituals as they go as priestesses but it's not the same as like you know the idea of the um the old english priestess who like is the one funneling the magic through her body and she's the only way that like this divine energy gets onto the planet kind of a thing it's not it's not like that <laughs> it's not like hierarchical at all um but it still is like deemed with that kind of significance although like the ritual in general is made collectively um like from the very beginning like there's the story that's set up by a group of people there's the ritual itself that's set up by a group of people and then like all the participants whether or not they know what's going on from the beginning are creating the ritual it's not something that can happen without everyone working at it do you think there's a propensity for leaders to be unconscious that they only lead because there's people willing to follow in essence their power is coming from others Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's probably pretty difficult to, to lead if you don't have followers, isn't it? Um, right, but what I mean, and again, I can use myself for an example, mm -hmm. that when I find myself in a role of leadership, it takes me consciousness to keep in mind 
that one, it's not more important than the other because mm -hmm. it only exists because of the other. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the other should be acknowledged along with my own acknowledgement I'm receiving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, that would be the case. Um, I mean, I think in the, in the greater political world, we have a tendency to take leadership um, for granted. Like, we, we take, you know, um, systems of power for granted, and we just assume that this, this position of power exists inside of a vacuum, because we just don't know how to interact with it in any other way. Um, so in ritual, is part of the ritual, or have you experienced rituals where part of the ritual is an acknowledgement of all participating in the ritual? So yeah. you have your focused leaders, Yeah. but is there at some point in the ritual where you're like, all right, so that, that hierarchy is dissolved in that moment, right? Yeah. Yeah, in, in, I mean, there, there are so many different formats um, that rituals can take, and there are for sure, like, um, rituals where, um, like, there's one person who kind of guides everyone into this, this place of, like, like, um, there's this thing called aspecting where you take on the energy of, um, if it's one person, you would like take on the energy of like a specific, um, like elemental being or like a deity, like people often aspect gods and goddesses to try to like bring that presence into a ritual space. Um, but we've done a bunch of rituals before where it's like everyone participating aspects like we did um a school of salmon and it was kind of with the intention of um like allowing the voices of the salmon people to speak to um a central human listener or, like, there's a ritual called the Council of All Beings where, like, people will aspect um, a, like, an animal or, like, a plant and they will speak from the place of that. And that, that opens up, um, like, the direction of the ritual to everyone participating. Um, and it, it takes away... Because it feels, it feels like it's, because I think priestessing is really about, like, energy direction, like, and, and it's important. Like, if you have a specific intention with a ritual, you need to have something that, that, um, directs the energy of the crowd, because, like, it could, it could fucking fall apart if there wasn't that container set up and there really needs to be, um someone to guide everyone to this 
this specific point in the ritual or like to this specific activity or like to kind of hold it in a container um but with like group aspecting rituals um it takes the speaking role and the role of direction away from one person and opens it up um and i don't i don't think it it completely i don't know it's difficult to say that there's like hierarchy in these rituals because there's not like this this power thing in reclaiming rituals often like it it happens unconsciously sometimes but um I think like aspecting rituals do kind of eliminate that to some extent because it's like it's it's opening up the space to allow in whatever needs to be there from whoever needs to bring it into being um so yeah it, it like it takes the power of direction somewhat out of the hands of the person who brought it there in the first place um but I've also like like done some amount of work. Like we did this thing um, in a camp exercise where we were like working with um, we were working with tarot cards and we were trying to scry this meaning out of it to um, like describe roles. We were working with with honeybees like that was our story we were just focusing on the life cycle and the um like the culture of honeybees and how they have this one central it's the queen they have a queen they have this one thing that holds the whole colony together and her role is critical um as are the roles of the worker bees and the soldiers and the nurse bees. You know, they're all, they all have critical roles and, um, like that it's, it's not, I don't know, it feels anthropomorphizing to say that it's these power structures are like, you know, power structures are in, inherent to their, their lives, but like, like they wouldn't be able to survive if they didn't have a queen and if they didn't have the workers like it's a totally codependent thing um but so we were working with that story and we came up with this phrase that was like um like the gist of it was basically like there isn't a need for struggle of power if all the roles being held are equally acknowledged and valued like the idea being that the queen is not necessarily fed more than the workers just because she's the only one doing this specific job um and that's kind of the thing with like 
priestessing, I think, is like like the 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 director of a ritual is not being given more out of this than everyone else there because the priestess on their own wouldn't be able to create this ritual without everyone else there. Like, yeah. Um, Have you been a priestess, Sarah? Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's a fluctuating role at witch camps. Like, there tend to be a group of people where most of them are drawn from because those are the people that are comfortable in speaking roles and feel like they... You know, it's it's volunteer based, in, especially in in the camps that I've been to. Like, um, yeah, it's not like a, these are the people that are allowed to be priestesses because they have this. They've paid their dues in this way, and they've you know done this work, and they've pulled up their boot laces, whatever. Like, yeah, we've for sure done that. Do you think you held that place well? like to think I did. <laughs> um, well, just like without without the judgment of others outside of you. Like you don't need agreement from anyone outside of you. Just your own personal assessment. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, there's always this work that I'm doing in roles of great visibility because I, I have so much shit around taking up space where I feel like I I should not be taking up space um because there may be other people who need it more or something like I, I always have a lot of guilt around taking up space in that way so um anytime I'm in a priestessing role there's some amount of like I shouldn't be doing this this is too much I'm taking up too much time and too much energy I shouldn't be doing this and like I'm am I holding this role well am I like am I making it about this power dynamic and then there's also like the the rush and the glamour of being the person directing a certain aspect of the ritual that's just you know intoxicating like but isn't there also the positivity of channeling mm-hmm. this ritual mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that's like I think that's another thing like working with the bee metaphor again like a worker bee is not going to be able to do the same thing that a queen bee is going to do so like like but it's also a role not to be devalued like not everyone is going to be able to priestess like not everyone has the right skills not everyone has the desire to do so you know like not not everyone can hold this role um and that doesn't mean that the people who are holding this role are any better or more significant than the people who aren't it's just like this is a job for people who can do it not for people who would like to do it but can't or whatever Um, you know I don't know Okay, this just popped into my head, and it's come up a couple times, I think, in this past month, of women who experienced judgment from just wanting to be a mom. Mm-hmm. And, and they were feeling judged, like, mm-hmm. 
really? You know, you know mm-hmm. that's your aspiration? Wow, that's weak. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess it's relative. Because if we, like you're saying, if we come to this place of life as a ritual, like I was even thinking of asking you this, do you, can you bring your experience in ritual and everything you've been talking about mm-hmm. of what's the term for that ritual like with the salmon and the bees aspecting aspecting yeah. so if you take that can you bring that experience into the experience of traffic jam <laughs> and it's a ritual mm-hmm. and like all these people and you're one of them are now doing this ritual called traffic jam Right. And can you do it in a manner in which it's productive? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a... I mean, I've come up with all kinds of weird things to to quiet my anxiety when it's not helpful, but that's that was one of the first ones that I arrived at myself because, like, it's so easy when you're in traffic to blame your lateness or your frustration with needing to be in the car longer than you thought on on everyone else who's there like you are not traffic traffic is everyone around you right so that was a huge like a huge thing for me to be like i'm another car on this road i too suck at merging like this is I'm participating in this. I'm a participant. And it's so easy to externalize it because I'm the only one feeling the frustration that I am feeling right now. Like, this is my thing. But I'm also surrounded by people who also don't want to be stuck in traffic. Like, like we're all creating this. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, there's an element of... I just forgot the word. <clears throat> like a group participation is creating mm-hmm. in a realm of energy. Mm-hmm. And can one be in that realm as a positive conduit to help transform what's a whole lot of negative energy mm-hmm. potentially? Mm-hmm. Don't know for sure. <laughs> Maybe everyone's really happy to be going 20 miles on 880. I don't know. Well, 20's lucky. What about, like, zero? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, could... And it kind of goes back to that whole thing of perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, like two people in a room, same room. Mm-hmm. Can, can one change one's experience? Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> um, yeah, God, I try. I try all the time to change my perspective. Um, and I think part of my my own personal practice is just compassion. Like I don't, you know, there are people and organizations in the world that I. I don't give any of my compassion to him. But, um... I can see that's kind of... doesn't sit well. It's not a hundred percent. Like, you look like you're a little guilty about that. 
I mean, I'd like to be all peace and love about everything, but I just, I feel like I know too much. I just, like, it's, it's so, like, I know so many people who, and some people who are very dear to me that, that kind of believe in this meritocracy where, like, if you, if you do good to other people, they will also do good to you. Um, like, if you are kind and polite, you will inherently receive kindness and politeness, and they are resentful because they feel like this is the energy I'm putting out into the world. I expect to be getting it back. Like, they feel entitled to it because they put so much of that energy into the world, and it's not helpful from what I've seen. It's not helpful to, like, it's counteractive to be resentful that you are not receiving love back after putting all this love out into the world and like are you really putting love out into the world if you're resentful of the people that aren't giving it back to you you know um so like just like raising that shield because like i mean current political administration i don't feel like i have bandwidth to give compassion to that i can i can look at a situation and understand how it got there, but that doesn't mean I, I have to invest, like, I don't have to excuse anything, um, because all that's gonna do is just make me angry that they're not also, like, giving compassion to people who need it, you know, like, like, there's only so much leverage I can give to folks who aren't going to reciprocate my my understanding and my flexibility around their shit um like i'm not going to be fed by giving compassion to every relationship that i encounter um and that was a huge thing for me like um leaving an emotionally abusive friendship was like i i am never going to get the amount of energy back that I'm putting into this because you this person this relationship is just a black hole and I'm going to dump myself into it and I'm just going to be gone after a while I'm going to have nothing left and like you know I don't know so I try to have compassion in most situations and I also have to acknowledge my limits because I would rather have reserves than become resentful. Um. And I really love the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Because for me, it teaches me part of the statement's existence is me learning to love myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, if I don't, if I hate myself, well, love my neighbor as I love myself means hate my neighbor. Because mm -hmm. that's how I'm loving myself. Mm -hmm. 
So to the extent that I can love myself, I can love my neighbor. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. where I think for you to make your choice with this individual is a choice of loving oneself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely important in loving thy neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The whole, like, um... I don't 100% agree with it, but the whole, like, you have to learn to love yourself before you can love anyone else. Like, um, that just, like, and that goes back to, like, prioritizing self-care, even if it's uncomfortable, over all things. Because mm. um, you need to be there. You need to be able to give if you are to give anything like you can't show up intending to feed someone with an empty bowl um so like you need to make sure that you are fed first and even the whole like make sure you put your oxygen yes. mask on yourself before you yes. put it on someone else because you can't help anyone if you're passed out from lack of oxygen like you know yeah, yeah. complicated. It is. I think our emotions are a continual means of staying on course. Like mm -hmm. When I'm unhappy, okay, I'm off course. When I'm happy, okay, I'm not at goal, but mm -hmm. I'm on course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think with, with like, emotional responses to things just like taking that I mean it's difficult for someone who's not neurotypical like myself because my emotions are often who's not what? neurotypical it's okay. it's a way of saying like not normal because that's a charged term but like you know someone who who deals with I understand yeah. what you're saying with neurotypical. Mental health issues, whatever, yeah. Um, like, my emotional responses are not appropriate often to the energetic situation I happen to find myself in. Um, but still, like, just using that as, like, a guideline. Like, like they're bumpers on a bowling lane and, like, like if I hit the thing, then that is, like, a signal to me to, like, redirect in another direction or, like, you know, to stop and, like, examine why I'm feeling this way and what needs to be done in order to get me back to, like, a, a base point or, um, like, back to homeostasis, you know, like, what do I need to do to, to balance this out? And it's not, like, it's not a static thing. It's, it's like, a, a consistent... Um, you know, it's, it's an action. It's like, like active balance is active. It's not, it's not something that, you know, it's not just about like having two blocks on a, on a stick, on another stick, just to keep it. Like, it's not a static thing. It's, it's about moving the things in order to keep stable or some semblance of stability. Well, I think um, part of why I wanted to do this with you 
because I think you're someone who is along with a very strong group of people. Mm. I was looking for an academic term. <laughs> Re-examining normal self and the vocabulary mm. in, that is being used. Yeah. I love every time I hear some form of communication that establishes our emotions are normal. So, what's the term you use? Neuro Neurotypical. Neurotypical. Yeah. What I love is I feel that is a temporary phrase <laughs> because the norm is whatever the moment is. Mm -hmm. There's a reason I'm feeling what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why you're yeah. feeling what you're feeling. Yeah. And I think again, like with my oven analogy and burning oh, off yeah. that, which isn't really me, I have some stories that I need to let go of mm -hmm. in order to love myself and love my moment as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like, like taking that as like a piece of a journey and like not, like especially not, you know, pathologizing it um which is it gets difficult when we get into like issues of met mental health but like it just upsets me so much when I have a friend who is hurting like especially if especially if one of my female socialized friends is apologizing for crying um it just breaks my heart because this emotional response has been pathologized to the point where my friend feels like they need to be sorry for feeling and especially for feeling with any amount of visibility and I think a lot of that is just like like not um you know not wanting to hurt which is understandable that's reasonable like that's that's I think that's one of the biggest like motivators for balance is like I'm hurting I would like not to hurt like this is it's a it's a motivator for redirection but it's also like um it's just I don't know it's just heartbreaking to see someone feeling like a burden for feeling um I'm just now at 56 years old look what you have to look for um right behind you <laughs> <laughs> wow you're doing way better <laughs> um what was I going to say about feeling oh <laughs> becoming comfortable with my discomfort. Mm. 
So just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine's going through a really trying time. Mm -hmm. And she was sharing this with me. And I wanted to fix it. Yeah. And I, there was no way I can fix it. It's just, it's a stupid concept. Mm -hmm. So all I had was my, help you like, you want more? Oh, this is I keep, Okay. We'll grab it. Um, all I had was my discomfort mm -hmm. at not knowing what to say, not being able to help, nothing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah. being at peace with that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. <clears throat> uh, which is on the surface seems diametrically opposed. Discomfort and at peace. That, that are, so there's, I heard this one monk describe his experience of joy hmm. is like the depths of the ocean hmm. and on the surface maybe a raging storm mm -hmm. and the waters are churning mm -hmm. you know, but deep deep down underneath it doesn't even you know maybe mm -hmm. a ripple there's nothing really. mm -hmm. yeah yeah um something that my mom is really into and I think it comes from a specific teaching of Buddhism I don't I don't, I don't know though but it's it's rooted in Buddhism um, is this like naming of situations and emotions and like a response to situations as either pleasant unpleasant or neutral um, and it's not it's about like not um, imbuing the situation with um, an inherent feeling, but it's more about like just noting our reaction to it um, in in a way that's that's not um, like. in some way like like or uh, it kind of removes it from um, like objectivity like when we when we name a situation like you know that was fucked up like we are removing the responsibility of that reaction from ourselves and like like planting something on that and I, I do think that there are situations that are objectively fucked up just as an, as an aside but like it's it's about going like hmm unpleasant like this is how this is my reaction to that situation and it's it's like a an observational way of like interacting with feeling and like interacting with our responses to situations um which i think is really cool and it's also not something i personally practice but but i think it's cool do you think you're personally practicing it in your own way probably Sounds i mean okay. yeah i mean i try to recognize subjectivity in most 
most situations. Um, and I, you know, I try to acknowledge, like, how my history and how my socialization and my privilege, um, like, influence my responses to things. Um, but I'm deeply analytical and I just want to analyze every fucking thing that ever happens to me ever. <laughs> um, so that's like kind of where that comes from. It's, it's, and it doesn't necessarily like shift my feeling at all, but it just helps to have kind of like a framework through which to look at something. Okay, but don't you have experiences in your ritual practice where there is no cognitive explanation? No. <laughs> really? You understand everything that's experienced within a Wicca ceremony? Not everything, but I, I have a hard time turning, turning that off. Um... Like, I don't want to explain everything, but I do want to analyze everything. I want to, like, it's, it's less about building a theory or a hypothesis than it is about just, like, understanding particulates of something, I think. Like, um... And that, that is, I mean, my interactions with, with magic are something that I, like, compromise pretty deeply with, with, you know, my more science-minded brain, you know, like, um, so there is, there is a lot of ritual scenarios where I just, like, try to be in feeling, but I do think that, like, that's something that I find is a barrier to a lot of how I experience rituals is this analyzing impulse. <laughs> um, and yet you're a good priestess. Yeah. So it's not yep. so... And, yeah. You know, it's not such a challenge that it even makes you a mediocre priestess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope not. <laughs> well, I would say uh -huh. that... You're probably a great priestess in that moment, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean like, and so you are. Yeah. It's like your cue right now, your cue. If you get angry at me, you're still cute. <laughs> Presumably, yeah. <laughs> well, you are. Yeah. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. Without, without our analytical mind. Attempting to challenge everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like the challenging aspect could just go on and on and on and on and on and on. And it often does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe it is divine because I do believe divine is eternal. Hmm. Maybe the challenge is part of the divine. I, mean, I think that's how a lot of a lot of people choose to look at it. <laughs> like, yeah. 
like this I mean the struggle of life itself is it's divine and it is so written in so many creationist texts like like it is divine will that we are put on this earth to suffer to experience suffering like and it's forever um yeah yeah it's comforting now did you <laughs> just say purpose that you know some creationist stories where in essence they say this is hell and you're here forever get used to the suffering kiss I mean suffering with purpose I think is is comforting like to to reason it out like like okay I'm really hurting but there's a reason not like I'm just hurting you know for no gain for no no like there's no intention behind my hurt it's it's just hurt um I think it's just really difficult to like exist in that kind of vacuum like where there's not there's not a reason for what's happening you know in in any situation um do you have a goal in mind like the goal of suffering the reason for suffering personally no um I mean I think a lot on a global scale a lot of suffering is pointless and preventable um like yeah I mean there's many schools of thought around that isn't there like like the whole idea of enlightenment as a result of of suffering or like um you know the the vintage christian idea of like self-flagellation and like bodily suffering as a way to to get into heaven kind of a thing like like which I guess, like, arguably is another form of enlightenment, but the the idea that, like, suffering yields, um, like, peace beyond death, um, that's the, that's the big one, isn't it? Yeah. But I don't... Like, even the phoenix from the ashes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that something greater will come after suffering, um... But I, I think, I believe that that is really, like, internal, personal suffering versus, like, group and, like, systemic hurt, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. But I guess, like, the term, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, could be applied to group scenarios too so yeah I don't know I heard a stand up comedian say something along the lines 
with that. Like eventually there is something that does kill you. <laughs> Go <laughs> that find analogy it. Is, You'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That analogy is only good for a certain point. And then, oh, that, that right. killed him. <laughs> that got yeah. him. Yeah. Right. I mean, even like, like um, that just made me think of... Um, you know, like you're looking for some for something, and you're like, "Oh, I found this thing." The last place I looked, and like, it's it's technically it's always the last place yes. you look, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. So there's there's something that's gonna kill you after a while. Yeah. It's just a matter of finding it in yeah. the last place that you look, right? do have hope that we have chosen this life for a reason in this creation of immense suffering. Mm -hmm. There's a way to live happily. Mm-hmm. Thank you.